This week, we are releasing a bonus episode. The Weirding Way is our Patreon-exclusive Dune Limited series, exploring all aspects of the Dune mythology, from the books written by Frank Herbert to the 1984 David Lynch film, the sci-fi miniseries, and Denis Villeneuve's recently released masterwork. In this episode, Jamie, Patrick, and Drew discuss the David Lynch film and our anticipation for the release of Denis Villeneuve's vision. To hear our first reactions to the new film, be sure to go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support or bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. There, you can sign up for just $4 a month. We hope you enjoy. Thank you. A beginning is a very delicate time. Creating the characters for Dune. I went to uh, uh, the Messiah story that's so strong in our, in our mythology. But I wasn't going to do the Jesus story. I went to the Arthurian legend, and I was trying to create a mythology that would give people a different view of how we give over our lives to leaders. You are the Quisel No, mother. I'm something more. I'm something unexpected. I am the fulcrum, the giver and the taker. I am the one who can be many places at once. I am the master of fate. I am the tool of fate. Welcome to The Weirding Way, an exclusive Dune podcast to Patreon only. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts. Mr. Patrick Green. And Andrew Jackson. How are you guys doing this evening? I uh, am doing well. We tried to go apple picking today, and oh. I don't know if either of you have had this experience yet. Uh, probably not, but we've uh, we've been apple picking now twice this season, and it has been like fucking Lollapalooza both times. I don't know what, I think it's because COVID. Don't go on Sundays, number one. Maybe it's that we're going on weekends. That could be part of it, but it Mm -hmm. really feels like just something went crazy this last weekend with apple picking. And I have to say it was not worth it. Like it was was like not (laughs) enjoyable, but we got to, you know, we got to see friends. We got to like, you know, go and we went back to their house for pizza afterwards. And so we got to do that, but it was like the line to get in to pick apples was, was like out to the highway. It was. Wow. So did you wait and go? Uh, we no, we, we we waited until it started raining, and then we were like, yeah, "I think we're, I think we're done." We're, well, we're gonna... I know someone who makes really great apple pies that could probably do it next week. Oh, when you're visiting, oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm well, visiting let's do it, Patrick. Dude. We'll take Andrew next week, everybody. Yeah, I'm yeah. gonna hang out next week. I can't. That's right, because it. by the time you guys are listening to this, I'll let's see the twentieth. What day is that? Is that Thursday? No, that's Wednesday, right? Yeah, uh, Wednesday, Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. Scientists. So I will be on the East Coast then. How cool is that? Yeah, have so very cool. Fun. And so Drew, tonight, how are you doing, man? We have, yeah. well, well, if we have go before ahead, I speak, ahead, I, I'm fantastic. I, I was, uh, since last we taped, uh, I went to Jamie's hometown of Chicago to visit my wife, and that was great. Mm. Got to be there for the marathon, which is one of my favorite 
things to see in the city. Um, so yeah, things are well. Now, now back here in New York, just me and the cat. Yeah. Where is where is her show in Chicago? Like what theater? It's at the Nederlander, hmm. which I believe used to be that. called the Oriental. Oh. oh, they changed the name. They sure they did. They changed the they fucking sure name. It doesn't say the Oriental. <laughs> That's been there for. I know. I know. It's better than the Dunkin' Donuts Coliseum or something. Let's be clear. You know, <laughs> the Nederlander. Yeah, that name, the Oriental name, better be up on that fucking marquee still. I will be livid as a Chicago. It, it is. Whatever. I'll, is go, it? I'll go ahead and ruin it for you. It is not. It is oh not my anymore. God. That's an outrage. Just have the used like set, like Mike Hubert shirt. You know, when he swears, there's just like uh -huh. ampersands and things that come up. They could have used that and just had, you know, Oriental, but not quite as racist. Nice ruined. Right? Goodbye. Yeah. I'm so <laughs> yeah. sorry. That's all right. Well, I hope her. That's a great theater. I've been inside. It's amazing. Yeah, it looks great. So tonight we are here we are. to discuss. David Lynch's Dune, which was for me, and I don't know about you guys, it was the entryway into the mythology and the, the story of Dune. I, you know, that's the film that I saw when I was very, very young and was taken by it. Um, so that's what we're here to talk about. And also towards the end, we're going to discuss our anticipation for Denis Villeneuve's Dune, which opens in a few days, honestly. And before we get into it, we should point out the reason why our other co-host, Reno, is not here with us tonight is because he's watching the fucking movie right now up in Canada, having the time of his life, uh, and we can't be there to watch it with him. But he, uh, he that's why he's not here tonight. He's getting to actually see the, see the film. It's very exciting. Very exciting. Very jealous. Not the David Lynch film, I should be clear. The, the, the Denny Villeneuve. Oh, this is his favorite version. Yeah, he loved it. <laughs> when we said we were going to do an episode on it, he was like, I maybe will not be there for that one. <laughs> <We're> like, <"Okay." laughs> but you know, I'm curious for you guys. You know, we did a frame rate on this a long time ago. Uh, I no, think it's been didn't. long enough that we've, <laughs> yes, we did. No, we did not. We did not do a frame rate. Yes, we did. Yes, yes, we fucking did. Yes, we did. Keep going. This is so easily. <laughs> also, this is being listened to by the only people who would know if we've done it or not, because this is a Patreon. Well, we've Patreon done so show. many. I we forget. have done a lot. I know. But well, I, I, the reason I know that is because in preparing for that frame rate episode, I finally watched the full movie beginning to end for the first time. I had never seen it before that all the way through. So my history with this movie is comparatively really, really recent compared to both of you. Yeah. Uh, and I figured because Drew, you weren't there for that frame rate episode. Oh, um, there it is. Which okay. did have, yeah, Jamie, there you go. Now, now you're going to concentrate again. <laughs> yeah. Because you weren't there for that. Can you give us like some window into where this sits for you? Like where you first came across it? Were you, you were already a Lynch fan before this or, or what? Yeah. No, this is actually my, it is both my entry point for Dune and David Lynch. Wow. So I saw this movie, God, I was like maybe like 10 years old. Uh, I just come from a family who watched a lot of like sci-fi movies and television series. And so my dad was very fond of it, had it on VHS, of course. And uh, we, that was when I first saw it. So that was actually the first David Lynch movie and then also my entryway to, to Dune. Um, but yes, I'm a huge David Lynch fanatic. I've seen all of his films and love them, even though lots of them are kind of messy, but I feel like he, that's kind of something that he basks in. You know, I, I think that's part of his process is just doing stuff that kind of organically um, emerges a kind of narrative rather than being so kind of, you know, uh, linear. Yeah, he embraces the mess. We can definitely. Oh, my gosh. That. Loves it. So so after this, you saw this first in terms of Lynch. 
And yeah. then did you go back to like a racer head or did you like, where did you go next with his film output? Uh, then like back to Blue Velvet, which is still my, my favorite movie. There's actually a Blue Velvet poster in the, the background uh, of our apartment. Daddy here. wants like, to just, fuck. I just, I love, <laughs> I love everything about that movie. I also just really love the, the score. Like, uh, like Patrick, yeah. I'm a, you know, have a music background. So like uh, Angela Badalamenti's scoring for a lot of David Lynch movies, I think is just absolutely impeccable. Um, but yeah, I love Blue Velvet, love Mulholland Drive, um, Inland Empire. It, I'm just kind of a sucker. And like Twin Peaks. I love everything about Twin Peaks. We got to do one on, we should do a Mulholland Drive frame rate and have Drew on for that. That's you, not, you don't you like that movie? Do, uh, I stuff that I, I just don't think, it's not about anything. It doesn't go anywhere. It's just, it's interesting. Sure. Yeah. Um, now yeah. i i, I love people... i love his earlier films hang on hang on yeah i love how people listening to this episode if they don't if they haven't seen blue velvet before will just think that drew <laughs> that jamie got drew off to say daddy i want to fuck and then daddy daddy wants to fuck. Like, nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> anyway jamie go ahead go ahead you, you like no i i have a pretty good relationship with david lynch i love a lot of his films i definitely more of a fan of his earlier work honestly when i first saw dune i didn't know that he was the director but i was very young so by the time when i was getting older and i started going to college to film school then I'm like oh david lynch eraserhead and then i started connecting all the dots my yeah. favorite of his is the elephant, elephant man, man which is his yeah. most coherent it just has the most heart um not that his other work is interesting but they, he has a lot in common in my opinion with um Cronenberg they have a similar sensibility oh, yeah. Cronenberg's a little more coherent even though he isn't at the same time um but there's this biting visceral quality to both of their films but I think David Lynch at his has a tender heart and I think you can see that on display um but I also think his sensibilities are very uh, uh non-linear and uh abstract and you can see that in his work as he gets older the older he gets the less coherent his films get in my opinion uh lost highway was i remember watching lost highway and hearing so much about it and then i watched lost highway and i'm like oh this is great oh oh yeah what is this um and it yeah. kind of spun out for me not that it was bad i just didn't connect with it um but i'm i am a huge fan i think that he is a profound filmmaker he has a profound footprint in the history of cinema um in terms of his aesthetics which you can see full display of in dune um he's he's just a, an amazing director and i hope he continues to work i haven't heard many people make that comparison before but i think it's 100 accurate between cronenberg and lynch I, I really feel like they are two sides of a coin in a lot of ways um it could be because cronenberg is from canada and David Lynch is from the Canada of the South, Montana. So <laughs> connection there. But I feel like they both they both revel in the in the, a sense of discomfort for the sake of discomfort, right? Like they're they they're not afraid to make you very uncomfortable as a film viewer. In the case of Cronenberg, a lot of the time it's uncomfortable physically because of body horror and because of just really kind of scary concepts. But with Lynch, it's something a lot more incipient than that. With Lynch, there's this, he has almost a peerless ability to capture a sense of actual horror on film, which is funny that nobody calls him a horror filmmaker. Yeah. And even the, the moments that are really scary, like moments in Mulholland Drive or Twin Peaks that really get under your skin, those moments, they don't necessarily come across as horror because they're not 
you know, there's no like haunted house or slasher or something like that. Like there's not a lot of the sort of the familiar trappings of it, but the ways that he uses the camera and the ways that he uses sound and really more than anything, the way that he uses frame composition to me feels like real horror. Like there are moments in his, in his work that just like never leave you when you see them the first time. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, blue velvet has a number of moments like that too. I think Eraserhead does. I think, uh, that the elephant man, to me, Jamie, I agree with you, it was a great example of Cronenberg at his most digestible. It feels a lot more like a sort of a typical movie. Lynch. It's interesting. What did I say, Cronenberg? Mm -hmm. <laughs> David Lynch. <laughs> I would watch that too, though. I feel like it's more uh, more digestible and it's more sort of uh, conventional in a lot of ways, but it still feels like him. To me, Dune is in some ways even more conventional as a Hollywood picture than mm -hmm. Elephant Man speaking of David Lynch, mm -hmm. because it has, it does all these things that we expect movies to do, right? Science fiction opera is like one of the most well-established types of film out there, right? And when you watch Dune, you know, it's, it starts with Irulan's narration, right? And the, it's mm -hmm. it feels like the opening scroll of Star Wars in a lot of ways, right? And then we're introduced, you know, sort of one by one to this procession of, you know, these are the planets we're going to be talking about. This is Caladan. This is where they're going to go to. You know, here's the guild coming in. Check out this fucking alien driving the ship. You know, we get all yeah. of these little conventions of things that we're used to, and it kind of registers as a, as a conventional movie. And then, <laughs> it, and then it just doesn't end there. And I think that's something that I want to learn from you both about tonight as people who know the movie better than I've seen the movie a couple of times now, but I'm not an expert in it by any, any, you know, stretch of the imagination. Uh, I think that it's, it, I, it'd be cool to be cool to unpack like why that is like where Lynch steps in and says like the source material isn't working for this context. I'm going to make it my own. I have to say, having now read the book finally, um, and absolutely adoring the book. I really, really loved the book and it really delivered for me. Uh, there are huge differences between the two that I'm aware of. And I know that oh, that sure. is part of why Reno is upset about the Lynch film. I think. Sure. But what I was surprised about though is the types of differences because in terms of plot points and the procession of them, it's actually very similar to the book. Yes. The order of events, right? It's, it's pretty similar. Mm -hmm. But the way the ways that those events land, especially with Paul's like ascension towards the end, is yeah. just so different because it's so clear that Frank Herbert was saying something very specific with that, um, yeah. which is that like this blind messianic worship that we fall into over and over again isn't necessarily the one that we should be falling into over and over again. Whereas the the movie ends with him basically becoming you know God, and yeah. it's a it's it's interesting. So yeah, so that's, uh, tonight it'd be fun to talk through that a little bit. And to you know, hear from you guys as people who also probably know Lynch better than I do, sort of where that push and pull is and where it lands. But uh, yeah, it's a it's an amazingly crazy movie. I'll pick right up where you left off there, Patrick, with like you know, the kind of the whole Quizak Hadarak in the book. You know, it's something that Paul is using right as like political leverage for his cause. Right, he's not literally the Kwisak Haderach, right? And in the David Lynch film, it's like the most notable difference is in the movie, it, he just is. He's just the Jesus figure, you know, and there's no gray area there, right? And there's, the, you lose that political intrigue and like the, what you're very much saying that Frank Herbert is trying to explain of like, that this is like a bad thing that we keep doing where we just kind of keep putting all of our hopes and dreams and beliefs behind this one person who is still a person 
right? They're still fallible. They're still going to be self-interested, right? And that's just Trump. completely mm-hmm. that's just completely washed away in in the the Dune movie. Which obviously, yes, it's. I think Lynch did that in part, like when going back and reading, like when like David Lynch accepted this gig of of directing and writing the screenplay, he hadn't read the book yet. He just was just like, oh yeah, sure. Like you want me to do a movie? I love ma- I love making movies, so sure. Um, it's something that I I really love about David Lynch. Um, when I was working, I worked a retail job at a music store in high school, and um, one of my coworkers was a film studies major, and he also was really into David Lynch. And something that he said stuck with me. He's like, David Lynch is a really great director. It's just a shame he's never met any real people. Um, <laughs> Because I, I, I feel like that's a, a lot of his characters, they're not fully fleshed out people, right? They are kind of like two-dimensional in a, in a cartoonish way. I think part of that is because Lynch really likes telling stories that are very archetypical, right? So he wants the hero just to be the hero and he wants the villain just to be the villain. There's no room for this kind of three-dimensional storytelling elements that we're more accustomed to in contemporary art. He really wants the stories to be kind of like fairy tales in a way, which is something that I find very endearing, but there are some times where those kind of fall flat because it just presents a, a version of the world that is maybe at times overly simplistic, you know? Um, at its best, it's idyllic, right? Um, so I totally understand through that framework of why David Lynch is just like, nope, we're just making him the Christ figure. We're getting rid of all the political intrigue behind that and like the, the, the kind of ickiness of him co-opting this messianic tale that the Fremen have. To the point that you're making in terms of Lynch's style, it, you can see it really on display in Eraserhead where it's this ethereal, very soft lens fairy tale in some ways, but it's twisted and dark and odd, um, but it's also very personable. To me, there's a similarity, not just the black and white, but there's a similarity between the Elephant Man and Eraserhead, they have a similar tone to them. Yes, they are both in black and white again, but there's just something a little bit more human. But I do think that Lynch is creating stories and films, not really about people. I think people are there, but I don't know what they're about, honestly. They're about bigger, not even, it's not even an ideas film. I think it's that, it's that space between reality and unreality. It's like, it's kind of like a, a trip. I've never done like drugs that, I mean, I've only done pot, but like, I don't, it seems like it would be like this acid trip or something. So you're seeing reality unfold. It's, it's there, but it's not quite there, but you're not sure what you're seeing. Um, Dune, I think, plays with that a little bit, for sure. And uh, we have on the intro to the show, Frank Herbert talking about, yes, I wanted to go with the Messiah story, but not the Jesus story. And talking about the trappings of propping up these people as our leaders to save us. And they never will because we, the only people who can save us are, are ourselves, right? I didn't know this about the story when I first saw the film. Um, I was steeped in religious mythology when I was growing up. Grew up very fundamentalist, Christian, in a commune, very, you know, hippie, based in the hippie movement. You know, Jesus loves you, come everybody. Like, so that was kind of the world I was living in. So for me, Dune spoke right to me. Actually, as a sidebar, and that's one thing when you've mentioned before, Patrick, where you're like, yeah, I just don't do fantasy. And I think fantasy speaks 
so loudly to me because it reminds me of the mythology that I grew up with. Certainly Lord of the Rings, really good mythology, really good fantasy will do that where it's a Messiah story or it's a story of an ascension of a leader of, of a myth of a legend finally coming, you know, of a prophecy, like that's all the Bible is, are prophecies and, and myths and legends and stories and parables. And so fantasy speaks really loudly to me because it, not I, I've kind of left all of that religious mythology behind, but I think that there's truth in the stories that people tell. I think that there's, uh, Frank Herbert was onto something, much like many authors who preceded him and came after him are onto something. The prophets of the modern age, where they're telling us a story, they're giving us a warning, much like we talk about with Blade Runner. Blade Runner was a warning to the future. And now here we are, and much of a lot of it is true. And Blade Runner 2049 is a warning to the next future. Um, and we've already seen shades of that happen as well. So I think for me, the way Lynch told this story worked, that kind of dream space technique that he uses. And again, I didn't know that the way he told the story, Paul ended up being the Kwisatz Haderach. I was like, oh, this is great. It was powerful. And then at the end of Dune, you see him yell at a very dead Fade Rautha and his chest plate cracks and the ground cracks. And I'm like, whoa, this is powerful. Like it moved me as a child, especially as I was um, still steeped in religion. It was just speaking the language that I was brought up in. You know, like, wow, this is, this is true. And like, look, another story of Jesus. See, you know what I mean? Like it was just, it was just uh, solidifying the stories that I'd been told as well. Um, again, now knowing that that wasn't the intent, that Frank Herbert had a different idea, I get it. But I still think Lynch's film is very powerful. Uh, it's a very, it, it's just a different iteration of what Herbert wanted to, to tell. And I don't know if that is necessarily a good thing. I think if you're going to tell a story that's based off a book, you better fucking love that book. You better have read that book. And that's a problem that you, we've seen in films before. We were I was talking about Batman earlier with people and um, there are a lot of directors who hadn't really read the comics. They weren't really big fans, but they were going to direct a Batman show um, mm -hmm. or a Batman series of films or about, you know, whether it's Tim Burton or Christopher Nolan or Zack Snyder, all these variations of people who didn't really weren't really fully aware of who the character of Batman is. Now, there have been very different iterations of Batman in comics. Bringing it back to Lynch, I think it was important that if you're going to tell one of the biggest selling stories of all time, you better fucking know what story you're telling. Yeah. And I, I just yeah. think it, he it, it does the story a disservice. Now, I do think the film is successful. I know that Reno hates it. I still love it, even though it's cheesy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say you're throwing so much red meat to the Batman super fans on this episode right now and pulling it right back by bringing that fucking movie up. I just want to say one thing before I know we're going to move on, but I want to say that Matt Reeves studied screenwriting with fucking Jeff Loeb. And if that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about what yeah. a type of a Batman aficionado he is, then like, I don't know. I mean, this it's in such good hands in my opinion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Who knows? Oh, I could sure. be wrong. Yes. Uh, getting back to Lynch. I'm going to wrestle this back again. Although I want to talk about Batman now. Um, so there's a lot of things in both of what you said that I want to take time to unpack. And I think we will, as we go forward, one of them though, is that we're talking about something that I think happens a lot in franchises that we love, which is that 
you reach a point where somebody has one vision for something and that vision might contradict the vision that we hold in our hearts and we kind of expected when we went to go see it. And then fandom has this moment where we wrestle with that. Like, is it okay that this is a different take on a universe? An example of a really successful one is Blade Runner 2049, which I think, you know, obviously we've talked about plenty of times before, but that's a very different movie than Blade Runner, you know, and in a lot of thematic ways, it's similar. And of course, like from a storytelling standpoint, it's cohesive with it, but it's aesthetically very different. It takes a lot of liberties with, you know, some of the expectations people had. And it's because, you know, after 35 years, people who loved the first film deeply knew what kind of a next Blade Runner film they wanted. And it was going to be in a rain-soaked Los Angeles, and it was going to be a film noir. And what they got was something much more expansive and bleak and different than that. You know, there was kind of a wrestling with, is this, is this working or is it not working? The reason why I think fandom basically, you know, across the board agrees that 2049 worked is because at its heart, it's saying the same thing. It's saying something of a piece with the first movie. So even though it might look and sound and feel pretty different, it's still saying something cohesive. What's interesting with the Lynch film is that it is it is really fundamentally saying something different from the book. And that's something that if you're okay with that, that's not going to bother you whatsoever. Because I agree, Jamie, what you're saying. The Lynch film says very powerful things about very powerful symbols, right? It says a lot of things about what messiahs mean to us. And it says a lot of things that are really, you know, profound, but they're just different things than what Herbert was saying with the book. And with the book, you got very much a sense that Herbert was kind of plumbing through, you know, culture and anthropology from for eons and saying like, what are some lessons that have emerged from this? Like, what are the circles we keep getting trapped in and writing a book about that? Again, I'm going to be distracted, but we, our partner Reno just got out of the screening of Dune and texted us about it. I'm going to not look at this, but this is, there's a lot going on in my head right now. Uh, so yeah, so all, all that is to say that I think there's an interesting, you know, problem that we're going to continue to come up against as more and more of our beloved franchises get revisited throughout, you know, our lives, which is, is it okay when somebody has something different to say? And I, and so I, I guess what, what I, I, Drew, I'm curious from your perspective as somebody who knows the books, the books extremely well and the Lynch huh? film, are you okay with him saying something different with the movie? I, I am. So I feel like this is probably a place where like Reno and I are just different fans of the thing. Um, I, for, for one, you know, I think there's transliteration that happens just by virtue of it being a different medium, right? Like this isn't, this isn't anything like the book, it's a movie, right? And so even though it's based on that source material, you know, you have to think about like the conventions of film versus the conventions of fiction, right? Like you have all the time in the world as an author, you can put as, you know, these are just pages made out of, you know, paper that you just can get from a variety of trees, right? So there's really no end, right? Whereas like we know David Lynch's original cut of the movie is around like four hours and the studio was like, it needs to be two hours. It just needs to be, right? So I totally understand him paring down the story and making things, um, less complicated because he's telling it in a medium that definitely does have a people have a bladder right and we need to like <laughs> not have the movie go so long that people like, have to get up and leave and go use the restroom and come back right like, unless they're wearing a, very... a still suit if they're wearing a still suit they're sure great. sure pee right in that thing with my fandoms i try not to be too set in stone with just wanting them to be translated into a different medium right like the mcu is a great for instance big marvel comic fan it didn't bother me at all that like Hank Pym has nothing to do with Ultron's making in the MCU, even though he's like the essential maker in the comics, right? Because I'm just like, oh, I already know that version of the comics. So I'm happy to see, oh, what if it was based on Tony Stark and Banner, 
Like, what would that look like? And it's a totally different character, just has the same name. But I try not to, you know, kind of check boxes with like a list. I'm just like, you know what? I'm going in, I'm experiencing something that's based on source material that I already love, but I'm totally open to someone telling it in their own way. Right. I think it would be a bit weird if filmmakers just were like, oh, I'm literally just taking what's on the page and I'm putting it on a screen. Right. Because that that transformation is completely different. Right. Like the book doesn't even exist in time. Right. And films are really all about like it, it is a moving picture. Right. Like it is experienced in a in a linear way by the viewer as opposed to the reader. Right. So I, I'm totally open to those kinds of transliterations. And I, I often find that they deepen my understanding about the source material because I'm like, oh, it's still Paul Atreides, but I'm, we're missing this part of him kind of being politically motivated. And it's just like, oh no, he just is like this Messiah figure all of a sudden, right? It's a very different Paul Atreides, but there's still that, that essential kernel of, of the character there. And like his love for his family and his house that he's seen destroyed before him, that's still there, right? So I, I actually find those kinds of differences really interesting. Jamie, before I pass it off to you, I just want to point out, you know, Drew, you mentioned the first cut was four hours. The studio said get it down to two hours. Final runtime is one hour, 37 minutes. You know what movie that has a one hour, 37 minute runtime? I mean, I guess it's a Venom movie. No. <laughs> Venom 2. <laughs> just, Aliens. Just... Aliens oh. is the exact same length. And this came up on our last PO episode. Yeah. So no, Aliens is two hours, Patrick. One hour and 37 minutes. The same exact like, aliens the theatrical cut yeah, of aliens is one hour yeah. and 30 well the special edition might be one hour and 37 minutes one of them is one hour and 37 minutes while, while we oh. talk i'm going to do some hard-hitting journalism and go on IMDb. <laughs> but what, my, my point being though that uh it's it, aliens is a great example of a movie that does not feel that long it is a pretty legitimately long movie and it just it, every time i watch it which has been more than a few times in my life probably five thousand every single time i watch it i'm like holy shit the movie's over already like how did that even yeah. how did that even happen right but um the lynch film i have to say that the two times that i've watched it i have i have really zoned out a little bit like part way <laughs> through i'm like oh my god this movie's yeah. still going on i find that it drags for me as a, as a film goer um that being said i think that well you know drew you bring up a lot of good points about the villeneuve film too which is of course going to be the same material broken up into two movies which i think will let mm -hmm. it let it breathe better you know but i guess before i go further though jamie i want you to have a chance like does it bother you that it's different from the book or is that something you kind of embrace again that's my first experience and it was a powerful one as a child so it doesn't bother me to that end i, I what i the films that i can talk about that depart from the book a little bit is Lord of the Rings films, which are incredible films that are well-loved by everyone, hardcore fans of the books, and they completely remove characters and film two, The Two Towers, which I just watched the four-hour cut last night. I think it's Boromir, or no, it's Faramir, who is entranced by the ring, and in the books, he doesn't do that. Um, and that was a very specific change they made to his character. But you know what? And people had a little bit of an issue with it, but the films are so good, people gave it a pass. Your question, Patrick, it's interesting because in one sense, I love what Lynch did. At, this, at the same time, he changed the narrative of Herbert's book. And I don't know if he should have done that. I don't know if the studio should have done that as well. And that's a different thing. It's one thing to, to not include a character or to change some things here or there for time or whatever. He changed what Paul Atreides is and who he becomes. And I, that, that's like watching Star Wars or 
say someone remakes the original Star Wars trilogy in a hundred years, and at the end, Luke turns to the dark side. Um, but you have people who I don't know were born in whatever, and they're like, that's not how. That's not what George Lucas did. That's not what George yeah. Lucas planned was. I think that is problematic. I can say that from compartmentalizing my experience of it. Like I think Lynch's Dune can live on wonderfully. I mean, it's also a cheesy movie in some ways. There are some yeah. dry spots to it. Um, there, some of the effects are cheesy, like when they're falling, when Paul and his mother are falling down the rock face. They're like, <laughs> "Ooh, Star Trek movie," yeah. you know. Just the effects that don't hold up. But I think that there is. There's a lot there. I think it's a beautiful movie. I think the art direction's superb. I think the costumes are superb. Again, I pivot to the this place of I don't know if they should have reframed what Paul Atreides was. This was a very specific story that Frank Herbert was telling, and they changed it in a fundamental way where he becomes Jesus, and he's supposed mm -hmm. to become a politician he literally, he literally makes it rain what yeah. I want to say. yeah you know. yeah um aliens uh theatrical is 137 the special edition is 150 you mean 137 minutes yes okay yes. you said an hour and 37 minutes 137 minutes is two hours and 17, 17 minutes, minutes. Yeah, yeah 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 i think i said 137 minutes but you know what it's on the record so we can go maybe back maybe, yeah. maybe not maybe it's david cronenberg who knows uh, i definitely fucked that one up i'll talk about it. You, know, you know what i do want to say though something that i love about this movie is that we get the chance to see lynch really shine in some places in a way that i don't think any other filmmaker quite could one of them is the prophecies that paul has i think those sequences hold up for me a lot and i think it's like a great example of the way Lynch uses imagery in a really interesting way. And this is something that I can't remember which of you was talking about this earlier, but uh, we were talking about, uh, Jamie, I think you were talking about how Lynch isn't so much like an ideas film. If what we're saying, he doesn't so much, can you remember what you were saying then? About his imagery? Or no, his images? Like his movies aren't really about ideas so much as they're about- They're abstract. Something. They're yeah, abstract. Something else. Like, right, right, right. Yeah. Right. So, so, so that's what I want to home in on. So, you know, in the Hodorowski movie, which we also need to do an episode of that never got made, he of course wanted Dali in it and stuff. And he was a hugely influenced by surrealistic art, right? And, and surrealism mm -hmm. is sort of the pairing of the abstract with the extractive of the concrete with the fantastical, right? Lynch's movie to me reads kind of surrealist in that way. And I think uh, in general, as a filmmaker, a lot of his stuff feels very surrealist mm -hmm. to me because we're seeing things that are like recognizably normal, like a diner, right? But it doesn't feel like a diner. It feels like a diner in some parallel universe where for some reason, everybody also speaks the same way we do and looks like humans, but but it's like clearly not actually our world that we're watching. Um, so that sensibility to me is throughout a lot of this movie. And I think one of those uh, moments are these these prophetic moments where he has these dreams and he sees these beautiful sort of image collages. And it gets to this thing that I think Lynch does really well, which is that he uses the mimetic meaning that we put into images without words as people. And he uses that to transmit meaning to us. And so he doesn't like the script doesn't help us and the characters don't really help us, but somewhere in the images are things that we recognize somewhere and we feel something specific because of them. But it's sort of in a place where words don't quite capture it, at least for me. But do you guys know what I'm talking about? Does it make sense? It does. I don't think to that end, I don't think it works for general audiences. That's one of the reasons why Dune fails. Um, I think, I think audiences are generally really smart. I, I, I don't think we need to, lowbrow it for them or pander to them but i also think that 
you need to, when you're marketing a, a film like this, you have to get through to them. And oftentimes an art house sensibility isn't going to work. You and I know this firsthand, Patrick. Blade Runner was probably never going to be a big blockbuster hit. It's too esoteric. It's too, not the kind of film people go and see at the theaters. They'll go and see it at an art house theater. Or they'll go and see it at a Lemley or whatever, but they won't go to an AMC on opening weekend to see Blade Runner. That's not the kind of film. And I think Dune ended up being something similar. As we get to talk about Villeneuve's version, he's making it accessible without dumbing it down. And I don't think Lynch knew how to do that. Not, And I don't think Lynch dumbed it down either. I, I just think he didn't know how to make it accessible. Yeah, that could certainly be. It, it's interesting how for such a cerebral filmmaker, for somebody who invests so much time in like a lot of this sort of subtle stuff, um, a lot of it feels to me kind of on the nose. I, I think for me, part of the reason why I struggle with this film sometimes is the amount of exposition in it. Mm. Of course, a lot of that is applied by Irulan, which is which is fine because she does it in the book throughout too, right? Um, but but a lot of the time it's like, especially the first like 45 minutes of the movie, there's just a lot of talking about what they're up to, right? Yeah. And then we have uh, pretty early, I think this is pretty early on in the film, the first time we see the Baron and he like eats or bleeds that, kid out who comes into the court and he's this like you know pustule filled disgusting mm -hmm. monster like to me that is another moment where i, I kind of have to fight to get past mm -hmm. that because it just feels so off-putting to me and it's i have gross. to say now, having read the book having read the book now the baron is like a totally different character for me like the, the bear i mean I, I see why he's so iconic because i now knowing the things that he does and the, and the machinations that he puts in motion and things in the book. He's a fucking terrifying character. But in the book, like his grotesquerie is basically just that he's too fat. So he has to like get help getting around. And in, <laughs> right. in the Lynch yeah. film, he's like this fucking flying <laughs> monster. And that's something else that like, I, I kind of have to struggle with a, a little bit when I watch it. Yeah. It's pretty absurdist to like how, car how grotesque he is. Right. And like when he's floating in the air, like just like screaming, you know, like it is, it's, you know, like I, I keep going back to my colleague and, and that I worked with in high school who was just like, yeah, he's just never met any real people. I'm just like, there's so many times where I'm watching Lynch stuff that I absolutely adore, but I'm like, no one in the world acts like this, right? Like the stuff that is happening on screen doesn't happen in the world, right? Or just seems inconceivable. Um, but I think that's part of, I think it's almost kind of like operatic, right? The way that he does it, where it's like, these aren't real people. These are just archetypes of like good versus evil. And so they act in this way that seems cartoonishly to us, but that's because the story I'm trying to tell is, is this kind of big kind of operatic story rather than something that's supposed to feel grounded, right? So I, I find that I s kind of slip into this kind of just acceptance of like when I'm watching Twin Peaks, for instance, I, I'm just like, oh, I'm just loving these little vignettes and these characters interacting with one another, but I don't feel like the story is necessarily authentic or sometimes I feel like the story doesn't even make sense and it doesn't occur to me that it should make sense, right? Like I'm just kind of riding the wave of an episode, you know? Because I think that's something that is very much a focus of Lynch is, is having these kind of atmospheric storytelling in film. It's so interesting that he chooses to have so much spoken exposition, right? Because that's something that's not common in any of his other movies. And I think that's directly because he felt like because he was using someone else's source material. And that's such a big part of the source material is something that he did keep, but that like almost never happens in any other Lynch movie, right? You just see stuff on the screen, you see this characters talking to one another, there's really 
very rarely any you just you know spoken word exposition that's happening off screen you know even in twin peaks which has all the trappings of a police procedural right there's there's very little like directly procedural stuff going on you're kind of having to figure out what what everybody's talking about a lot of the time which, yeah. which is i find really refreshing um but in in the in the dune film yeah it's it's to me it feels very much like here's a script everybody do your cliff notes versions now let's go you know kind of a thing i i think this is like a really pivotal mo uh, moment for lynch as a filmmaker because i think this it, it's not a coincidence that he hasn't adapted things since right and he very much was kind of like oh gosh this wasn't me working at my best i really should just be telling my own stories with my own characters right because of the the backlash that he got from this i think it was a real inflection point for him creatively you know the question i have is what film did lynch make before dune Elephant that Man. Have... That, that's this is what that's what okay okay that's what i was thinking uh, although for some reason i feel like elephant man came out i don't remember although when i saw elephant man for the first time as again as a kid i thought it was made in the 40s yeah, of course, uh, not because yeah. it was black and white, but because the performances were so authentically vintage, it felt like a film that was, I was like, oh, this is a film made, it's a really old film, like it was, it's clean, like clean, there's no swearing, there's no sex, there's no, it's, it's kind of like the Phantom of the Opera a little bit, it just felt like a film that was made somewhere in like in the 40s on a soundstage in, you know, at Paramount or something, but it wasn't, yeah. um, even still with with the elephant man i wouldn't look at that film and think oh this guy could direct dune like i wouldn't ever think that um yeah. although i think you could tell with the elephant man it was a film that spoke to lynch's heart you could just it was all over this film really spoke to him um i think in the, again in the same way that the story for Eraserhead spoke spoke to them it was kind of a story about the least of these and i think if you've seen interviews with lynch if you've seen him talk he's kind of one of us he's he's just kind of a this kind of blue collar guy who's got some he's like Sidney pollock in some way he's just kind of like yeah i'm making some art what is it i'm just making some art buddy you know that's kind of who he is a little bit <laughs> he also made a film called the straight story with um oh what's that guy's name he's passed away he played he played Matthew Cuthbert in the 80s version of Anne of Green Gables. Um, oh my God, what's his name? Anyways, really simple. And I don't know Anne of Green Gables. Yeah, it's a really simple story set on a farm. Um, just an incredible film. Really simplistic. You would you would watch. It's like a Disney film almost. You would yeah. never realize that David Lynch made the film. Um, but there was a simplicity to it that. I think is who Lynch is. I think he's a yeah. simple guy. And I think there's a lot going on in his head that are kind of, that's kind of incoherent, but interesting, which I think you can see in his films as time goes on. There's a, there's a scary quality. He kind of mines his nightmares in some ways. And there's an mm -hmm. aesthetic. There's almost an, to your point about him being a horror director, it's almost a psychological aesthetic that he has to his films where it's horror, but it's not horror. And it feels like horror, but we're not seeing a lot. I mean, there's elements of Doom that feel like horror um, with with the, the the Duke and just a lot that's gross that feels like, you know, the food and the just, there's a lot of gross, horrific shit in Dune and some of his other films as well. Um, but I don't think at his heart, he's the kind of director to direct a movie like Dune. I don't even know why he said yes, probably because of the payday. But we also have to remember, Lynch removed his name from that film. 
Uh, I mean, they credit him still, but he's like, no, he walked away. He was done. He doesn't even want to talk about it. In a recent interview about the new Dune, he's like, I don't even care. Like, he didn't want to even talk about it, which is interesting to talk about a film directed by a, a director that we really respect and admire and whose career we follows, who hates the film. Much like David Lynch, David, fin David, David Fincher. Fincher, sorry, yeah. hates Alien 3 and won't talk about it. Um, it's interesting because we're, I don't even know what Lynch thinks of his Dune now. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, again, what we do know is he doesn't want to talk about it. Is it the film he wanted to make? Probably not. No, sure. I don't think so. And, and, and I think that that, going back to what Drew said, I think this is why that was such an inflection point for him because he wasn't a neophyte, right? He had already had some really successful movies under belt. He'd been offered Return of the Jedi also, by the way, and turned it down to do this Thank movie. God, God could you imagine? Could you imagine? <laughs> I, I want to just take. I just want to take a like. peek into that in that multi multiverse <laughs> and just see what that looks like. You know. Yeah, and then close it again and be like, okay, yeah, we're, we're yeah. Gonna... be like, no, I'm um, gonna go back to mine. Can you like, imagine his he, job I mean... of the hut? How gross <laughs> that would be. <laughs> Baron Harkin in his job of the hut. <laughs> I, I feel like what, what's interesting though is that this was at a point in his career where he was established, but he wasn't a household name yet. And this, I think, was he didn't have final cut on this movie, which is a huge deal for any but any auteur to not have final cut this is a movie that he was not in control of this is a movie that he, it was a De, it was a De Laurentiis film essentially so he was dealing with just like a hugely influential production house he was dealing with this hugely influential estate of this science fiction legend that was the most widely read sci-fi novel of the 20th century he was dealing with all of these expectations and he was this guy who was like approaching 40 at the time he was born in 46 who like was sort of ready to strike out on his own and get his own career really really off the ground um and uh and was held back by all of these things and i think that was just a deeply frustrating experience for him but i i, I don't want people to get the wrong impression from this because the three of us do like this movie i think i, I know mm -hmm. i i do fundamentally like this movie i don't know exactly how i feel about it in terms of how good it is because i feel like it's not a movie that i can judge in sort of strict ways because it's not a movie that speaks to me in a strict way so i i, I do want to make sure before we close we talk about some of the things that we do do really appreciate about the film and i'm curious for either of you like what's something about it that you love jamie you mentioned the costumes and design and stuff but you know other than that like what what, what in this movie speaks to you what about you patrick you go first me go first mm-hmm uh, so what speaks to me about this movie is primarily the look of it, which is a pretty shallow thing to, to like a movie for. But when you're talking about a David Lynch film, the look of it is actually really important. And I would argue goes beyond surface level because a lot, again, it's really imbued with meaning. I think, um, you know, from the very beginning, when you see like the Guild Navigators, you know, I think that, that sequence in the Great Hall is just like so uh, visually stunning. I think Arrakis looks great. I think the worms look amazing. I think uh, I think that the design is great. I think that the way that they you know sh that they show the Fremen I think works really well. I think that even the eyes, which are you know not they're, like for some reason they're kind of glowing in in this movie, whereas because they the use movie, animation of over the top. They did like they, is that what they did? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it looks like they took a highlighter or something. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not like a big deal, but but. It, I, I think in, in general, the design choices are really good. I like the still suits. I like the costuming in it. I, I love the Benny Gesturit. I love the way that they have the headpieces and things. I think that when you see the ways that he plays with a lot of the, you know, the, the book, I have to say now having read it, is, is wonderfully uh, unclear on a lot of details. 
like great fiction often is, right? Like it doesn't, it like when, when they're talking about a suspensor lamp in the book, they're not like, you know, it was 12 centimeters tall by four centimeters wide. It had a rectangular base and an oblong top. It was, you know, illuminated by blah, blah, blah. You know, cause like we were talking about in the previous episode, it's not a hard science fiction. It's not science fiction that has to say, you know, because of the, the ion propulsion system that was keeping it elevated at exactly this, you know, this distance from the ground, et cetera. A lot of it is sort of, it sort of exists in a dream space. And so as you're reading the book, your, your subconscious is kind of filling in a lot of details and a lot of details that look sort of biblical, like a lot of very old. And in uh, the movie, I think gets at that. The movie is, you know, we're seeing one of the great imaginations of the 20th century, David Lynch, imagine what Dune would look like, you know, in conjunction with a lot of really talented people. So for me, the look of the film is, is really important. The score, the score to it has grown on me quite a bit. When I first saw it, I really didn't like it. Um, but since I've listened to it more, it's it's really sort of grown on me, especially the music in the second half of the movie, I think is really strong. Um, and I also think that uh, in general, the casting is really good. I, I think a lot it's a really great um, showcase for a lot of sort of forgotten about character actors from earlier in the 20th century who this is many of their you know, last roles like uh, Kenneth McMillan died only a few years after this movie was made. He plays the Baron and, you know, it, obviously it's a cartoonish performance, but he's really effective in it. Um, you know, Brad Dourif, right? This is a great, this is probably the first thing I ever saw him and he was really young when he did it as, as Peter. I think he's, uh, like, Piter. who the fuck, or Piter, Perry, Peter, <laughs> like who else could have possibly played that part? You know, I mean, in, again, in the book, they talk about his voice all the time being so distinctive and mellifluous and kind of strange. And Brad Dourif has like the epitome of that, right? His voice is just utterly unique, which is why he voiced Chucky so well. Um, I think, uh, you know, getting to see people like, like Jose Ferrer, Right, he's so good in this movie. Freddie Jones, Kyle McLaughlin, of course, is the first thing I ever had seen him in, and and I think that he, for somebody who was so clearly not a fifteen-year-old, plays a kid and an adult really well, and I think he really gets home this idea of the journey that Paul is on, you know, from the, his humble beginnings as this student to you know this the synthesis of 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 all things, right? I think that his that the the Atreides house journey in this is really really interesting. So I think uh, I think I think there's a lot going for it, but I think that it doesn't for me sync up. It feels like it's a movie where there's all these fascinating tableaus, and they they don't quite speak organically to each other in the way that I think a more cohesive movie would. And I think that's part of why I, I really have a hard time talking about it. I also want to just shout out to Virginia Madsen. This is the, definitely the first thing that I had seen her in, that, that I you know not the first thing I had seen her in, but the her first movie appearance that I have seen. And, uh, and she is just stunning in this movie. I, I think she's just so beautiful for one thing. And like her whole narration beginning is just the most like transfixing the way that she's shot and the way that she delivers that intro narration. It's just like, you just fall into her gaze. You know, it's a beautiful moment and her delivery is great. And I think she just, you know, brings a lot of heart and soul to that character that, um, in the book, I don't care about quite as much. So I think, yeah, I think, I think there's, there's a lot going for it. Yeah. I, I really love the, the set design in particular. Like it's, it's one of the things that I really love about, um, the 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 world that's built in uh, Star Wars is how old it feels, actually, and that's something that I think is very much captured in Dune. Of like, they you walk into these these buildings where like Harkonnen is at, or when they go and visit the Emperor, like they're things that are still very recognizable as the 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 types of palaces that that we would recognize, right? So it's even though it's in the far future, things aren't that different. But I think I also really love the uh, the monstrousness of the guild navigators. I love just how, like, it, you know, these were essentially just humans who just took a lot of spice and they ended up becoming like these kind of like grotesque 
giant newts in cases. And it's just so weird. But I, I and love- And again, just briefly in the book, that is not how they're described. And I didn't know that Correct. when I first saw the Lynch Correct. film. So I was like, I can't wait to see how he talks about these things. And in the book, they're just like people with like little mouths and big heads, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah, they're, they're still very much clearly humanoids, right? <laughs> and so that, that's actually like, that's a huge artistic license that Lynch took, but I really love it. And I, I think what he's trying to get at, because you know we're talking about tr transliteration via medium, right? It's not something that you're just reading on a page, right? He has to be able to show you what what these characters are all about. And it's one of those instances where it's just like, oh, this is something that's mutated be so far beyond human that no longer looks human. And what that what Lynch is just trying to get at is that these are no longer, you know, for all intents and purposes, people anymore, right? Um, so I actually really love the grotesque nature of, of that in the Harkonnens, even though I know that it's like cartoony, but I love that he just went for it, you know? And I, I think something you hit on too, Patrick, like the cast is fantastic. They're not just great actors, but they're actors who are willing to do the things Lynch is asking them to do and are fully committed to it, right? Um, and I think you need that for a lot of the scenes to work because he's asking you to do things that might not feel like second nature, right? And all the actors, I think, put in a really good job of actually just being committed to the roles and, and doing the scene, right? Um, and yeah, like the costume design is also just really beautiful. And I, lo I love the score. I love the, the synthiness of the I score. I do too, sure. I love that score. Um, it's just, yeah. it's romantic, it's lush, it's expansive, it's beautiful. And much yeah. like both of you were saying, I think the movie looks gorgeous. Caladan specifically when they're on the home world of Caladan, the wood, the wood pillars and beams, yeah, just, I've never seen design like that in a movie before. Not, it was different than Star Wars. You could tell that they're like, we're not doing Star Wars. We're not doing things we've seen before. It has to look different. And they created their own world and it had that, it looked like antiquity as well. It looked like to your point, Drew, it had been around for a long time. And I really appreciate that kind of world building in films. Um, it helps me believe the world. I've been watching this show called Foundation on Apple, which does the same thing where they really world build just expertly. They know what they're doing. Yeah, Dune, the art direction and the costume design uh, in spades. I think I, I think it was even nominated for an Academy Award for their design for the art direction or something. I also, I mean, I, I love the cast. I remember as a child seeing Dune for the first time and Kyle McLaughlin was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life. Like mm -hmm. he was transfixing, beautiful, like just absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Just his line delivery, his voice is, there was something about him that spoke to me, like just as a creature of beauty. Um, it wasn't mm -hmm. like, as a child, I wasn't, for me, obviously nothing was sexual. It was just, wow. I mean, it was like when you guys probably saw a woman as a child that you first were like, oh my God, they're so beautiful. Yeah. And that's what I thought about Kyle McLaughlin. And, um, mm. but the bigger picture for me is I like Dune the way I like Crawl. Have you guys seen Crawl? Mm -mm. Oh my God. Um, I know. Okay. I missed tell uh, me, right. tell me about funny. it though. Uh, yeah. Crawl came out in, uh, I think 83 or 82. It's a movie about a Frisbee, isn't that right? Some kind of, yeah. It's, like a, uh, a it's a very young Liam Neeson, fantasy, sci-fi a little bit. There's some similarities okay. between Dune and Crawl. You guys have to watch it. I really can't go into. But let me name another film. that. Um, so I like Dune the way I like Lady Hawk, um, where it's kind of cheesy, but there's some resonance there and there's some beauty there. And it 
It was powerful in its own way, but it's Lady Hawk, you know? And I think that way of Dune too. Um, and it has a really powerful place in my film going history and in my psychological memory too. Dune informs me. Lynch's Dune informs me creatively as a person. No. He's using the voice. No. Some strength there. Surprising. Come here. I love it. I do. I love it. And all its cheesiness and all its trappings and sometimes as, as fake as those sandworms look, which legend has it, those sandworms were then reused for, oh, what was that? Beetlejuice. Um, what, what'd you say? Beetlejuice? No, no, no. Um, it was a, Tremors? Uh, tremors, yes. Tremors, yeah. They reused them because Dune had lost so much money and yeah. they were trying to, that's just the legend. I don't know how true that is. But yeah, um, that's my answer. I'm going to cut you off for something very important. I hold that Tremors is one of the perfect films. I think the first <laughs> Tremors movie truly is a perfect film, and I will fucking fight anybody that argues. With me. I've never seen it. No, I have seen, never seen, seen it. No, I saw the first Tremors. I haven't seen any more. Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon. And the, yeah, the first Tremors. The guy from Family movie. Ties. Yeah. Yes. The father from Family. Michael film. Gross. Yeah. Michael. Yeah, he goes on to star in seven more of them. So if you yes, like he does. He did in that movie. And there was a TV show with him too. Yeah. Welcome to uh, whatever it's called, but yeah, it wasn't very good. But the first three Tremors movies, I think, are really good. I think the first one <laughs> in particular, though, is, is truly almost a perfect movie. Not a yeah. great movie, but a but a perfect one. Um, Jimmy, did you finish your point? I did. Yeah. Uh, again. To the answer, I just, I think it's, it has its place in film history. I think it's a very important film, even if it wasn't overtly successful. Um, I think it made Denise version possible. Right. And it made and the sci-fi version possible too, which we'll talk yeah. about. Which we will. I, I can't, I can't wait to go back and watch those. I want to pivot us to our closeout here, which is our sort of anticipation portion, which you set us up nicely for. I also want to, before we do that, point out that, when I think of Lynch's Dune, for some reason, I really think of Caladan a lot. I think because those early scenes there just are like so magisterial and they really imprint upon me and I kind of carry them through the rest of the movie a lot um, in a way that I think is really effective because in the book, that's a, a thing is it's like they left this behind. Like this was this was everything, you know, um, this was this was their family name. This was their history. Mm -hmm. This was their palace. This was the, you know, the, the thing that that. Um, I don't know if I'm going to spoil things in the book or not for people, but, but, you know, one character who's very important who dies, uh, you know, about halfway through the novel, the last thing he sees in his head is a, an image of, of a kite flying on Caladan in the blue sky. And it's, it's one of those moments that just like hits you really hard because you realize like what it, what it meant to leave that place for them. Mm -hmm. sure. And uh, I, I think that in the, it's interesting to note that in the Villeneuve trailers, we don't see Caladan like at all like I, I i or if we do we just see these sort of stone vaults you know it doesn't look the way that the lynch film looks and so that might be something that you know lynch does better or or at least no matter what differently but i, I guess just to sort of pivot us and bring us home you know we are now just a matter of days out from seeing this right so so what we're gonna our plan right now is i'm gonna pick jamie up on thursday night uh, in Western Massachusetts, we're going to go hit up a local movie theater, see it late night on Thursday, going to come back, going to go meet up with Drew and some other friends in New York City. Over the weekend on Saturday night, we're going to go see it there in Lincoln Square. 
extremely excited about that. We're going to have, you know, these event moments together seeing this movie because it means a lot to us. Um, this is a movie that so many people have reached out to me about wanting to go see it together, wanting to like put something on the calendar to go check out a screening later in the, in the year. Like this is something that people are talking about in a way. And for me, they haven't been talking about since Blade Runner 2049 came out where it's just like, everybody is sort of agreeing that we have to see this, like mm -hmm. that we need to see it in movie theaters. When 2049 came out, of course, we hadn't been shut out of movie theaters for the better part of a year. But for this thing, you know, like many, for many people that we talked to, even Jamie on our text thread earlier with show staff, some people haven't even been in movie theaters since COVID yet. Um, you know, Mike and I have been going a lot lately, which is which has been great. But it took us like eight, maybe like 15, 16 months to feel comfortable enough doing that. Um, so we really we have been out of theaters for a long time. And the arc of the release of this thing really mirrors the arc of our return to civilization because this was supposed to come out a year ago you know and we were ready for it this movie was done it was wrapped it was in the can there was a release date and then it was pushed back and then it was saying you know that we're going to put it out in may but it's going to be just on hbo max and denny wrote that famous letter now like this open letter to the public saying you can't let this happen like the studio can't let this happen this is something that needs movie theaters and we will push it back as long as we need to push it back but you need to see it in a movie theater which again i, I just adore and i think is a wonderful antithesis to what Christopher Nolan did, which I think is still to this day unforgivable and putting Tenet out in the middle of the pandemic when there was no vaccine in theaters exclusively, which felt so reckless to me. Uh, I think that this is like somebody who has such respect for movie theater going and such respect for the cinematic traditions that we hold dear and said, we will give this movie the time that it deserves because if there's one thing you don't rush, it's an adaptation of Dune. If there's one thing you don't want to half-ass, it's you know translating one of the great works of art of the 20th century to the screen for people who have been waiting for it many of us for much of our lives so you know i'm just saying all this to sort of commemorate the fact that we're sitting here you know days out from physically together going to see this movie in theaters and that makes me really happy because you are two of my favorite people in the world and i'm going to get to share this with you my wife's going to be with us you know like we're going to have this 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 communal experience of going to a movie theater together and and then talking about it and staying up late and having fun so from a personal standpoint, that's on my mind a lot right now, that this feels to me like old, normal life a little bit. And that's really, really making me happy. But as a fan of science fiction and a fan of Danny Villeneuve and a fan of Dune now, I think officially I can say I'm a fan of Dune as after having finished the book yeah. and having talked so much with you both about it and with Reno. Uh, I feel like I am just beyond excited for this movie. And I feel like I'm you know, about to experience something truly special. And I'm, of course, I don't want to bring it up too much, but going back to 2049 when that came out and that feeling of holiness almost, of this this like sacred ritual of watching a great work of art unfold for the first time, that feeling that, you know, you can ascribe to whatever you want, you know, whether it's a feeling of like religious epiphany or a feeling of, you know, musical epiphany or a feeling of just transcendence or a, a feeling of a really human moment. These films give us opportunities to share those moments together and to bring the meaning to it that we bring individually. And I'm just excited to share that moment with with both of you and with my incredible wife who's studying behind my head right now and with all the people who you know are going out there who listen to this show. Like We are in this together. So when you're all in theaters or at home watching this thing next week in North America, or for those of you who have already seen it, you've already had the experience, but for those of you who are about to see it, think of us too. 
uh, we will be thinking of you. I promised you that. You are all in that theater with us next week. We are all, I'm going to look to my sides and I'm going to imagine all these friends that we've made through the years who listen to these shows, who support us. Like you are, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you are like the inner circle of people who we share the stuff with day in and day out, year in and year out. You are people who are in our hearts and we're going to get to share this together next week. So just know that you are there with us. I mean, I think you said it the best. I, I, for me, this feels like a religious pilgrimage in some ways. Like I, for, I, I tell people that movie theaters are my church. They just are. I mean, I, that's where I go to, I will go to a movie theater any day over watching a movie at home. I mean, if I possibly can, because it demands your attention, you're also paying a little bit more and it's just a different experience. It's, it's you're not there to look at your phone. You're not there to go to, you know, you're not there to go take a break or to press pause. You're there to watch a movie. You're there for the the ceremony of the film. What better film to have a, that is a ceremony than a Denis Villeneuve film, you know? And I, I can't yeah. wait. And just again, like you guys to be hanging out with you guys in New York City, seeing this film that's been pushed back for a year or more. I can't wait. It's going to be a wonderful time. And yeah, that's all I have to say. Yeah, Patrick, gosh, you, you said it too eloquently. I feel like uh, <laughs> I, I, I can't even compete. Um, I, very sim I'm very similar to Jamie. Like, I love just going to the movies. Um, there's something so fantastic about it, having that communal experience and like being in a room, a dark room with total strangers, but not feeling like strangers because you're all there to experience the same, the same movie. I, there is, this was a, about a year before the pandemic. This is one of my favorite, I tell this story all the time, one of my favorite theater going experiences. We were going to see uh, Greta Gerwig's Little Women adaptation, which is fantastic, great film. And we're watching it with a friend of ours, Ben. Um, ben, like myself, is kind of a, a beta male. Like we're, we're in touch with our emotions to a degree, right? In a way that a lot of, you know, dudes in, in our society typically aren't, right? And so Ben was already very familiar with the story of Little Women and brought tissues because he, he knew he was going to cry, which I was like, very sweet. You know, it was one of those things where I'm like, that's the moment that I knew that Ben was just a really sweet dude. So we're, we're sitting there, packed theater because it's opening night. And there are these two guys next to Ben who I, I presume were on a date and they start crying in the middle of the movie. And Ben, without saying a word, just grabbed some tissues from his tissue box that he brought and just handed them over. Like no, no words were exchanged at all, but it was just like, we're people in that room and we were just there to experience the thing together. And we were together, right? Even if you didn't know the person's name next to you, you were, you were there for the ride. And that to me is, is the great thing about going to a movie theater, right? It's just sharing those experiences with strangers, you know, and feeling connected. It's a beautiful moment, and, and we've been sorely lacking for those moments for a long time as a as a global culture, of those moments yeah. of communal time together. You know, and, and this is one of those one of those moments. Uh, one one other thing I want to say before we close is we just saw the last duel in theaters, um, which I thought was actually fantastic. It was really good. And at the end of the movie, there's a little note from presumably Ridley Scott or his production team that the the last thing that is in the final credit of the whole movie after everything scrolls up is he says this work directly was it supported the livelihoods of i think 835 artisans technicians film crew catering staff and he said like basically that this was something that it took basically a thousand people to bring together and uh and that was it there wasn't any like you know judgment on why he was saying that 
he was just saying, all those names that you just saw go by made this together. And I think that that is something that I want to remember while we're watching this, is that this was not only, not only are we all around the world watching it together, but it took a, a global workforce to make this movie. And that workforce was working, you know, I mean, they made it before COVID, but like the, the entire, you know, global production line of getting this to theaters and getting it promoted and getting people to interviews and to press junkets and getting things on the road shows and getting, you know, reels to theaters digitally, et cetera. Like that's all been happening during a pandemic. And it's, and it's, and it's something that's, it's a reminder when we see it tomorrow to remember that we are seeing it in spite of a lot of things that could have shut this thing down along the way. And, um, and again, it's, an, it's, you know, famously called the unfilmable movie who knows it's it seems like they might have gotten it right this time but you know this is a journey that goes back 50 years to Hodorowsky's adaptation in terms of trying to get this thing to work as a movie and that failed and then Lynch's film tried to reach for the stars and it landed in somewhere else but it, and it you know that was ineffable and interesting but not quite the book it has taken a long time to get I mean that that Lynch film came out before I was born you know and I'm here as a as a 36 year old with kids you know late 30s <laughs> um, and I'm, and I am, I am there like physically as like a reminder of how, of how long it's been since this movie came back out again. Cause my entire life up to this point has happened after that Lynch film came out. And then we're going to walk into that movie theater. And we're going to see if they actually got it right. And I have to say, I cannot wait. I can't wait either. Uh, last thing I want to say though, as we talk about theaters, I, I will, I cannot go on enough how important the theater experience is and how it cannot ever die. And I know that there was lots of talk during 2020, the theater, are theaters going to go away? Are they going to ever re back, ever reopen again? And all that kind of rhetoric that we were hearing because people were afraid and productions were shut down. Theaters were shut down. Movies were pushed back or released digitally or released in different ways. Movie theaters are what we were supposed to go to. That, that communal experience isn't just there. Like there's something to be said about it and it pushes us to get out with people. And a lot of some people I know, they're like, oh, I prefer it in my home. But that's not what it's about. It's about experiencing this together. My first memories of being in a movie theater were Return of the Jedi when I was a kid. It was packed with all of my friends and adults, and people were standing in the aisles in this low-rent theater on the north side of Chicago. It was like a second run, and we went and we saw that movie over and over and over. And we have those memories for a reason and it brings us back. And that's why theaters are important. And I feel like they're important because it takes us out of our own experience and it pushes us into a larger experience. And that's what the best stories do and the best movies do. And you're not going to get that experience in your home. You will not. It's not to say that we can't enjoy things in our own. I mean, there are, there's content made for home viewing, obviously, and there always will be. But theaters are there for, in my opinion, to better the community, to better the experience as humans, because we're all strangers in the theater, but not for those two hours. We're not strangers. It's like we're in a, an airplane together and we're laughing and we're crying and we're booing or whatever. And we're this like almost this family unit experiencing this thing. You can speak to someone, you can look over and talk to someone or all of those things that you do in a movie theater, you know, or may maybe someone blurs out, don't do it, you know, and everybody laughs. Like that's why a theater is so much fun. And I will always push for it. I, I don't, I, I hope it never goes away. I don't think it will. I think we've turned that corner. The box office shows that. That's why movie theaters are important to me. It's about community. So with that, I think we can probably wrap. Amen. Enjoy it, everybody. Yep. We'll see you on the other side, or talk to you on the other side once we've seen it.
If you would like to listen to all of our reviews, go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support and sign up to become a member. For those of you who already support us via Patreon, we thank you.